may have a seat. Oh, just kidding, you need to stand for the reading of God's word, I'm sorry. <laughs> Our text this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians 2.17 through 13-3.5. Through You'll find this passage on page 986 in the Bible in the chair in front of you if you need that instead. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. To pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the God. Now you may be seated. Thank you, Julie. All right, we're continuing in our time through 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to start us off with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this passage together this morning. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time so far of worship. Thank you for the sweet singing. Thank you for um, Bob's presentation about uh, where we are as a church financially. Thank you for the tithes and the offerings that have been collected. Thank you for the confession of sin, our call to worship. Thank you for prayer. Thank you that we know people who need to know Jesus, and I thank you that we have an opportunity, at least on Sunday mornings, to pray for them. And I pray, God, that the gospel this morning would seep into our hearts. It would be effective here, but it also would leave this place and be effective outside in our community. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be clear, that our minds also would be clear, and that we would have a good understanding of what Paul is trying to teach us this morning through 1 Thessalonians. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, just a quick recap. Paul, again, in this letter to the Thessalonians, he wants them and he wants us to live our lives considering eternity. So we're not just living for now and the situations of now and the circumstances of now. We live through those situations and, and circumstances, keeping in mind eternity and what's happening then and there, what will happen. And so we've heard so far that as he wants us to live, as the Thessalonians are living their life, considering eternity, there's only one place that hope can be found. Where is it? Following Jesus Christ. If at the end there is Jesus for eternity, then now there's only hope in Jesus. Last week we talked in a little bit more detail about what it means to walk worthy. That was the, the phrase that Paul used. We learned that it, walking worthy is following Christ. You see a pattern here, not leading others but following Christ. And so Paul to the Thessalonians, what is he saying so far? He's saying, as you already are doing, stay in the hope of later in your lives now. As you're already doing, keep repenting. That's his message so far. And today we have this little bit of urgency entering in and he's saying, do not turn aside. And that's really what this letter 
is about. He's concerned. Look at verse 17. You can see his concern. You can hear it. Verse 17, remember, they were torn away early after some protest in Thessalonica. And so he says here, he references that. He says, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Paul wants to get back. He needs to get back to his Thessalonian brothers and sisters. He's concerned about something. If they're already living in the hope of later, if they're already living this repentant life, what is he concerned about? He's concerned, Paul is concerned, because he knows something. He knows that the Christian life is not free of bumps and bruises. That's what he knows. Paul knows this. Paul's aware of these obstacles. And in this passage, he talks about two different kinds. He talks about physical, situational difficulty. In other words, external forces hindering the mission of the church and the gospel. He also talks about personal, spiritual difficulty, internal battles looking to hinder the course of the gospel. And so church, what we can learn this morning from this passage is two things. We can learn that we are not unassailed. We are not unattacked in our hope of eternity. If we are hoping now in eternity, that's not a, a, a free and clear path with no problems. We will be attacked in that hope. Also, we are not, we are not unhindered in following Jesus Christ. As we follow Jesus, we will come into contact with difficulties, obstacles. <clears throat> and so what we're going to learn this morning is that Satan is our vengeful enemy. And he looks to upend the church of God, both in a broad sense, the church as a whole, but also in our hearts. Satan hates all these things. So to start this sermon, uh, this is probably why you came to church today. We're going to start by talking about Satan. All right, there we go. Um, The story of Satan. I just want to make sure we're clear on who Satan is, what we're talking about. So we're going to give a quick little theology of Satan, okay? Um, And then we're just going to pray and get out of here. Just kidding. um, Listen, in the Bible we get a small glimpse, a small glimpse of the story of Satan, okay? The the, the most clear passage we have about where Satan comes from and how that all is going down is Revelation 12. Now, I'll say this as a side note. Oftentimes, people attribute Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 to being the story of Satan. I want to say that those are not passages about Satan. Those are actually passages about human beings. But what the thing about sin is it always follows the same storyline. So it seems very similar to the storyline of Satan. But here we have in Revelation 12, the story of a battle happening in the supernatural realm between Satan and angels that, are, that he has brought with him in his rebellion against God and Michael, the archangel. And so it says this, here's the conclusion. After Satan is defeated, I'm on, good. Uh, The great dragon, this is Revelation 12, verse 7. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So after this initial defeat in the heavenly places, this little glimpse we have of this supernatural battle that's been going on, he shows up in Genesis 3. And of course, we're going to be in those uh, chapters during Advent, so we'll talk more about it then. But think about what happens. He shows up in the garden, and what is the temptation? He whispers into Eve's ear, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be like God? 
This is the same thing. This is his story. This is his desire. And he whispers it. Satan in the battle against heaven, what's that about? He wants to be like God. That's the root of our sin as well. And so we have this character, the supernatural character that's been in conflict with God and his allies. He's been cast to earth. And so what is Satan then? What is he? We know where he comes from. The Hebrew word for adversary is Satan. He's an adversary. He's our adversary because we are God's children. He's God's adversary. And so the way I want us to think about Satan this morning is that he, since that first defeat, he's this cosmically sore loser, okay? He's a cosmically sore loser. Uh, the Lexham Survey of Theology says it this way. There's just no better, uh, a more succinct way to describe Satan's activities than this. Since his initial rebellion, Satan has continued to work against God's righteous and saving purposes in the world. He actively opposes the propagation of the gospel by blinding unbelievers to its truth, persecuting the church, and promoting false doctrine. Satan actively seeks to incite Christians to fall into sin and is constantly attempting to ensnare them in unrighteousness. Satan is also an accuser, calling the faith of Christians into question before God and accusing them to sin. That's what Satan's job description is, basically. That's what he does. All those things. And so as we talk about Satan, this sore loser, he has some strengths, but he also has some limitations. Let's talk about that for a second. What are Satan's strengths? What are the things that he uses to accomplish these purposes we just read about? His weapons are confusion and disbelief. Oftentimes, the devil's weapon is contentment. I feel like I'm pretty good. That, that's, a, that's a weapon of the devil. You can boil it all down to, though, sin. Sin is the devil's weapon. He wounds with sin. He tempts us to wound others with sin. And when he hums into our heart this idea, don't you want to be like God, we think, yes, yes, I do. As an illustration, totally random, let's just say we all were in children's Sunday school this morning and we made craft crowns that said, Jesus is king, okay? It's just an illustration, totally random. Don't, don't worry about it. What would our hearts want to do? We'd want to cross out the name Jesus and put ours. That's what we'd want to do. That's the natural inclination of our hearts. Totally random, by the way. That didn't actually happen. It did, though. Um, we all too often, even as Christians, capitulate. We give in to the will and the work of the devil. When he hums, don't you want to be like God? We say, yes, I do. That's the work of Satan. But we have to remember, this is so important, Christians. This is so important. Satan is limited. Satan has weaknesses. Satan is not the God version of evil. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omni-whatever. He's not omni-anything. He has limitations. First of all, he's not all-knowing. He has to only respond to what he's aware of. He doesn't know everything that's going on. Satan doesn't. And so oftentimes, why is it when things are going well in our life, do we suddenly meet an obstacle? Because Satan is aware that God's doing something neat and he hates it. We have to remember, too, that Satan is bound by Jesus Christ even now. He's bound. You can read about this in Luke 10. It's a real, the, the full story is great. We don't have time to get into it now. But, 
But Jesus sends out the 72 missionaries. They come back. They're all excited about all the things that are happening. And Satan make, uh, sorry, Jesus, not Satan, makes this comment in Luke 10. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you can read about this too in Revelation 12. And even though Satan knows he's outmatched, even though he knows in the end, in the end, he's fully defeated, even though right now he knows he really has no power to stop the gospel, he pours his effort, his effort into the disruption of God's kingdom and the spiritual lives of God's people. That's what he does. Okay, that's the end of the Satan stuff for now. Um, and so that's who Satan is. That's where he came from. That's what he's doing. And what Paul is getting at here in two different places is that in Satan, we have a serious adversary. He's not to be taken lightly. He's also not to be taken too seriously. The first thing that Paul wants us to see is that Satan hates the expansion of the church. Satan, when he sees the church expanding and moving forward, he attacks. Again, we see this urgent tone in verse 17 and in verse 18, Paul breaks that fatherly tone we saw last week and he gets personal. He's talking about how they were torn away and they want to come back. And then in verse 18, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, what is he saying to the Thessalonians? I didn't abandon you. I, I want to be with you. I personally want to be there to finish your discipleship. He wants to come. And he's attempted to do so. I have attempted to do it. But what happens? 18, part two. But Satan hindered us. That's the explanation that Paul gives. This word hindered means to stop. Uh, one theologian named Gene Green, what a great name that is. Um, he says it this way. He defines that word this way. Stopped is a term that comes from the military. To stop the advance of an enemy army, soldiers would tear up and destroy the road to hinder their passage. That's what's going on here. That's what Paul is describing in the activities of Satan. And so the early church and us, as the church moves forward, as Paul would bring in a new city and, and new believers would come to light, what would happen? Satan would do what he could to hinder the expansion hinder the expansion of the church. The early church and we are engaged in a battle for the church's expansion. Now, I'm using that word expansion very deliberately. I want you to not hear the word existence. That is not what we are in a battle for. We are not in a battle for the existence of the church. We have to remember that Satan is already defeated in the end by Jesus Christ. And so, the church, church, there's this fact about the church that is encouraging to me. It, in fact, gives me tingles when I think about it. The church will not, cannot ever fail. The church doesn't fail. The church does not fail. As we look at the Western church, at times, I'm with you on this, it's tempting to think, well, it's been a good run. <laughs> it's been a good run, but I guess it's over. I have a wall, a, a wall in my office, in case you didn't know, it's got walls. Um, I have a verse on one of those walls, is what I meant to say. Um, and it, I have it there because when the struggle is real, it's a reminder that what we do as, as in the name of Jesus for the church is never in vain. It's from Ephesians. It's also Paul. Listen to what, how he describes the church. Of this gospel, he says, I was made minister according to the gifts of God's grace. What's, his, what's this ministry he's been given? To preach to the gospels the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
and to bring to light for everyone, listen to this, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? And to cap it off, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is not an afterthought. Gentiles coming to know Jesus and then spreading the church and the gospel is not an afterthought. This has been the plan all along. It's God's eternal plan. The church is God's eternal plan. It will not, cannot be stopped. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And he finishes that passage by saying, don't lose heart. Yeah, I I am going through trials and tribulations. You will go through trials and tribulations. Don't lose heart. Why? Because the mission we are on, the gospel that we serve, does not stop. If we allow ourselves to be plugged into that truth, church, the guarantee of the gospel, think about the significance of that. Think about the significance of that. Think about the truth in that, yes, Satan at times is trying to tear up the road of the church, even our church. He wants to stop what God is doing. He's a sore loser. He wants to make it difficult. He wants as many of us as possible to abandon our way. But despite his petty actions, the gospel goes on. The gospel goes on. You and I, We're called to be part of something that cannot fail. I don't know about you, that is motivating to me. That's encouraging to me. In fact, there's no greater glory than the guarantee of the gospel. And if you look at verses 19 and 20, I love that Paul put this in here. Again, another personal note, but he's talking about what is it all worth? What do I do this for? Where does it all lead? He says this, for what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. And so in the end, in the end, what is Paul's hope? We have this pesky living now for later concept here again. He lives now. He does the work now. He's eager to get back to Thessalonica because of what? The only thing that brings hope is the idea that Paul will stand before Jesus Christ and present a group of people impacted by the gospel. That's it. That's his hope, his joy, his crown. And ours is no different. We don't present our occupation. We don't present our bank account. We don't present our works of righteousness. We present people knowing the gospel. And and why should that be an encouragement? Because guess what? God will have his people and he will use his people to do it. We're a part of that. There's no greater glory. There's no greater legacy for us than to participate in that. The expansion of the gospel. And so we can take encouragement, even though Satan wants to hinder the expansion of the gospel, we take encouragement because the church is God's eternal plan to expand the gospel, and he does not, will not be overcome in that mission. And so Satan, as we see, hates the expansion of the church. He hates it moving out into our communities. He hates it moving out into the world. He really also very much hates the gospel seeping deeper into our own hearts. So here's where we go from the external hindrances to the internal. We look at 
Paul's concern, he really lays it out in verses 1 and 2 and 5 in chapter 3. So you can turn your attention there. Paul's concerned with the Thessalonians. He's seen it before. He doesn't want to see it again, that with the difficulties they're facing, that he's concerned they might abandon the gospel. They might abandon the gospel. Look at verses 1, 2, and 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, do you hear the urgency in that phrase? We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and send Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. To verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer... I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul thinking about the idea that this group of people that he loved and discipled and ministered with would step away from the gospel is something that he can't even bring himself to think about. He's desperate to do whatever he can to maintain their relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's afraid in verse 3, that their afflictions would move them. The the phraseology here is fascinating. Um, You wouldn't catch it just from the English, but this word move is actually the word flatter, and affliction means to hurt. So there's there's a double thing going on here. What's happening? He's afraid that that the the Thessalonian Christians, through their hardship, you see the people in their town were persecuting them, making life completely miserable. And most scholars think that, at the, think that at the end of that making them miserable, they say, listen, just get rid of Jesus and everything will be okay. They're trying to flatter them. They're trying to cause them to say, well, there's got to be something better than Jesus. And so he's talking about flinching from pain, but also flattery from temptation. It's good for us to remember, church, that Satan doesn't always use blunt force. He doesn't always use blunt force. In trials, sometimes we're tempted to think, man, if I would just do what I want, I would be happier. (laughs) That's flattery. That's flattery. If I could just do such and such, man, things would be so much easier, so much more pleasant. The enemy whispers to us, I can ease your pain. Satan will use whatever it takes to draw us away from Christ, and he knows at times that he catches more flies with honey. That's in the Greek. Um, And so what is Paul affirming here? In the second part of verse 3 and verse 4, he's affirming that as Christians, we will have ongoing persecution. Look at this. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What? Afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Meaning, we are under affliction, you are under affliction. This is what happens when we're part of God's plan in the church. One author said this, Paul's not thinking of a period of persecution which will pass and the church return to normality. Normality is persecution. What's the message here for us? As long as we follow Christ, as long as our hope is in eternity, as long as we have affection, the affection of God on us in Jesus Christ, his son, Satan in this life will want to disrupt that. That's what we know. We know that. It will happen. It's guaranteed. And so really, 1 Thessalonians 2.17 through 3.5 gives us two guarantees. We're confronted with these two guarantees. One is discouraging, one gives us hope. The first is the tempter tempts. That's a given. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But the other side, the other guarantee 
gives us hope. Yes, the tempter tempts, but God and his gospel will overcome. God and his gospel will overcome. So, the opposition of Satan is guaranteed. What should that cause us to do? That should cause us to be ready, to be aware, and honestly, it should cause us to just simply be needy. (laughs) We can't stand up to the wiles of the devil on our own. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus is the one who defeats Satan. What makes us think we don't need Jesus in our battle against Satan? We need Jesus. That's why our only hope is found in following Christ because he's the one who conquers our enemy. And so our only option in knowing that the tempter tempts, that that Satan is against, that the church expanding and our hearts deepening in love for Jesus, he's against those, he hates them. The only hope we have is to follow Jesus Christ through our lives. So despite knowing the guarantee of obstruction, knowing that the gospel charges on, knowing that the answer to the question, Christ, would you have me do? Where would you lead me? is clear in scripture, that's where our hope is found. And so what would Christ have us do? First, he would have us, Christian, participate in the expansion of the kingdom. It will not fail. It will not fail. God will have his people and he will use his people to do it. And Christ would have us grow and mature in our relationship with him as we follow him. And guess what? God guarantees that as well. We'll hear it in our benediction today. God will do it, Paul says. I think it's also good to remind ourselves what we leave behind. It's very practical. Paul talks about it here. If all we leave behind as a legacy are those who are reached by the gospel, why would we invest in much else than that? I hope you can see how this ought to change our perspective in life from avoiding discomfort to enduring it while following Christ through it. There's a difference between those two things. And so I want to say this morning, if if you're living your life for yourself, I, I don't want you to hear harsh words. I want you to hear true words said in love. If you live your life for yourself, for your comfort, for your way of living, you live your life the way Satan wants. His purpose is advanced through us living for ourselves. And as we live for ourselves and truly live for Satan, to what end does that take us? He's already lost. (laughs) He's already lost. And so what do we end up with as we live for ourselves? All All we end up with is a rotting mess of a wasted life. That's it. The rotting mess of a wasted life lived for ourselves for one who is already defeated. But if we live for that which cannot fail, the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, what do we find? We find hope and pain. We find joy and sorrow. We find lasting glory. We find a legacy of Christ followers. followers, And we find something that truly and honestly lasts forever. And so this morning... As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I think that ought to be our focus. As we eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, we're celebrating something that is undefeatable. It's unending. It's guaranteed. The gospel moves forward. 
It does not fail. Our sins can't keep us from it. (laughs) That's an incredible statement. Our sins can't keep us from it. Jesus has paid the price. Satan can't tear up the road that leads to the cross. He has no jurisdiction there. The path to God and his love and his forgiveness is cleared completely by Jesus Christ for rebels like us. In our Sunday school class, I think it was last week, the meaning of marriage, uh, the idea came from the chapter that the vows of marriage give us a secure boundary in which we can actually be ourselves. And I can't help but think about how that is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's a reality that does not change. And it secures us, if we believe that to be true, we believe that we're sinners, and Jesus Christ died for us, and we can't do anything for our salvation. He did it for us. That gives us a place to be honest about our sin, about how we feel, and it gives us a secure place to walk forward, take a piece of bread, and drink a little cup of juice or wine, not because we're worthy, but because he is, and celebrate with him fully. That's why we do it. And so this morning, if that's who you affirm Jesus to be, the savior of sinners, a physician to the sick, if you affirm that, yes, that's me, if you affirm that walking forward and taking a piece of bread and drinking a little cup of of liquid is not necessarily you saying, look at me, it's saying, wow, I can't believe Christ even loves me a little bit, but he does. If you affirm these things, you've been baptized, you've made that profession, God says the path is cleared. There is no hindrance. Come and eat, my child. Celebrate this morning as if that's true. Now, if you don't believe that, you don't believe Jesus came to save sinners, or maybe you don't believe you're a sinner, or you believe that there's something better than salvation from sin in your life, and you refuse to repent of it, the Bible makes it clear, do not come forward. It doesn't make sense for you to come forward. And so we as a church affirm that message from Paul and Christ to be true. And so this morning, if, if that's your place, don't leave it at that. Certainly want to speak with you about the truth of the gospel, what it means, what it means to be a sinner. It's actually not that insulting. It's just a reality. And there's this God that loves us despite our sin. Don't leave it at not eating. Seek out the answers. Let's take a moment and pray privately. I'll draw us back together with a prayer of blessing over the elements here, but let's pray and and allow God to speak to our hearts in this moment before we have the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, Thank you for giving us your word. Your word lets us know and it gives us confidence to face the truth, the reality of life without flinching. What is that truth? We have an adversary. We have an adversary who not only hates the gospel and hates the church, he hates us individually. He hates that we want to love Christ better. He hates that Christ is working in our lives through the Holy Spirit. He hates it all, and he does what he can 
what he can to obstruct it. But thank you, Lord, that we know also that your gospel will not fail, that your sanctification of your people will not fail, that your call of our names does not go unanswered. You enable us, you capture us, you free us from our sin, and you call us little by little into the light of knowing and loving you. Thank you that grace is a part of your eternal plan. Thank you that for while we are a local church, we are a part of this mission that in an overarching eternal sense will not fail. We get to be a part of your plan here in Northeast Columbia and around the world by being together and loving Jesus and sharing that love with others. And I pray, Lord, this morning that the Lord's Supper, this bread which represents a painful, broken body of Christ, this wine or juice which represents the blood spilt for my sin, our sin, as we participate in this, we remember our sin. It grieves us. We remember the sacrifice of Christ and how it covers our sin. We're overjoyed by it. And finally, we celebrate and remember that this is our guaranteed future, life and a feast with Jesus Christ. Satan defeated, sin gone. May we celebrate that this morning at your table. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.